This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church in our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It is great to be with you, Ashley. We are entering the final week of the Synod. Are you homesick yet? I'm a little, I'll say I'm I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> and ready. It's only Monday. I know. <laughs> it feels later than that. I'm missing my park. I could really mm. go for a run in Prospect Park right now. Yeah. There is a couple parks in Rome, but we haven't had a chance to get to them. We did attend our first European soccer match over the weekend. Yes, that was super fun. We went to the Roma versus Monza game. Yes, AS uh, Roma. <laughs> and they won, so it was awesome. Yeah, diehard Roma fan from now on. So <laughs> Yeah, we got uh, our scarves, so it's official. <laughs> yeah, sorry for cheating on you, Liverpool. You're still our first love. That's right. We are deeply embedded in European soccer now, but we are also deeply embedded in the Synod, and we have a great episode on that this week. We do. We're talking to Rick Gallardi. Rick is the Joseph Professor of Catholic Systematic Theology at Boston College, and we actually talked to him before we came to Rome because we knew that one of the big questions that was going to come up during the Synod is the role of tradition and change and authority in the church. Yeah, that's right. And it can be this thing that's like super heady and theological, but Rick is really an excellent, excellent teacher. He's been a professor for a long time. And, you know, I'd always heard great things about Dr. Gillardi's classroom and, you know, just to be able to have a taste of that and have it inform our own coverage of the Synod. We hope it's a resource for you as you start to receive some of the news that comes out of the Synod. We think this is going to be a really important resource. So stick around for that. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. So as you know, we're here in Rome covering the Synod on Synodality, which is going to have huge implications for the church around the world. And so there's no better time to tell you about an upcoming conference at the University of San Diego that's going to explore what it means to be a Catholic college or university today. It's called Lighting the Way Forward, and it'll look at timely topics like climate change, structural racism, polarization, and lack of trust in institutions. They're asking really honest questions that affect us all, just like they're doing here at the Synod. The conference is taking place from January 11th to 13th, 2024. And this speaker lineup is pretty dynamite. We've got Cardinal Robert McElroy, who's a frequent writer in America and also a friend of the podcast. Vincentian Father Dennis Holtschreiter, who's the president of the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, and our friend and colleague, Glory Purvis, host of the Glory Purvis podcast. For the complete lineup and to register for the Lighting the Way conference, visit their website at sandiego.edu slash lighting. That's sandiego.edu slash L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. Are you an animal lover, musician, mother, daughter? If you are, or someone you love is, Saints for Sinners has a unique medallion just for you. Each Saints medallion is one-of-a-kind and beautifully handcrafted in New Orleans. Saints for Sinners medallions make great gifts for any occasion. 
speak to everyone's experiences and passions and offer you and your loved ones a wearable reminder of your saint's guidance, perspective, and comfort. And most of all, the hope your saint should bring to your life. Each medallion is imported from Italy and hand-painted in New Orleans, and you can buy them at saintsforsinners.com. Who's your saint? Take the quiz and find out at saintsforsinners.com. Take the quiz and get a new suggestion. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So we are really coming into the home stretch for the Synod on Synodality. We are entering our final week. We've been here for the month of October, and we are in the last module, although we've heard that it's the end, but it's also going to be the beginning. Right. And they started this week like they have all the other modules uh, with Mass at St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, we didn't go to the Mass, but we were informed that some uh, St. Louis Jesuit tunes were played. Yeah. So this is big. <laughs> I wonder how often those have been played at St. Peter's Basilica, but the Cinder participants got to sing, sing a new song. And one of my favorites, one bread, one body. Oh so, my gosh. Very exciting. <laughs> And then after Mass, they made the short walk over to the Synod Hall to hear a number of talks during what they call the general congregation. And these are parts of the Synod that we actually can watch. Yeah, so this is one of the only things that's been public through the Synod. So these are like these series of talks that happen at the beginning of the modules. And after that, they broke into small groups to kind of discuss that. And the small group discussions, like the rest of the Synod, has been closed off to the public. Yeah, but we wanted to circle back on one of those talks. It was delivered by an Australian theologian because it really connects to what we talked to Rick Glardy about in our interview about tradition. Yeah, so the talk was delivered by Father Ormond Rush, and he began kind of abruptly, I thought. He says, and I quote, Having listened to you over these past three weeks, I've had the impression that some of you are struggling with the notion of tradition in light of your love of truth. I couldn't help but wonder if the participants thought they were struggling with that, but he certainly seemed to think so. Yeah, and Father Rush basically outlined two approaches to tradition, and he relied really heavily on the work of Joseph Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI, who attended the Second Vatican Council as a theological expert and witnessed the discussions they had there about the nature of change and tradition in the church. Yeah, and since these talks were live streamed, as we said, we wanted to bring you uh, Father Rush's own words when he's talking about these two approaches to tradition. What Joseph Ratzinger saw during Vatican II as the source of tension here were basically two approaches to tradition. He calls them a static understanding of tradition and a dynamic understanding. The former is overly legalistic, propositional, and ahistorical. That is relevant for all times and places. The latter is personalist, sacramental, and rooted in history, and therefore to be interpreted with an historical consciousness. The former tends to focus on the past, the latter on seeing the past being realized in the present, and yet open to a future yet to be revealed. The Council used the phrase living tradition to describe the latter. So later today at the press conference that we were at, Cardinal Schoenburn was talking and he mentioned that in response to one of the questions about Catholic teaching and tradition, that we would need a whole you know, lecture on fundamental theology, which because that's just a classical Catholic teaching that gets tossed around a lot. We don't 
always go deeply into understanding, but not on this podcast. <laughs> yes. So if, if this is all sounding a little heavy on the theology and complicated, fear not, we're going to break it all open with Dr. Rick Gallardi. Joining us from Boston College is Richard Gillardi. Richard is the Joseph Professor of Catholic Systematic Theology at Boston College. He's the author of several books, including By What Authority? Foundations for Understanding Authority in the Church. Welcome to Jesuitical, Rick. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining the podcast. This is a topic that is both like really personal, but also a chance to kind of like nerd out in a theological way. Um, so I, I think our listeners are going to love this. Good. For sure. So I think this is a question I've had and maybe a lot of our listeners have had just very basically, like, what do I have to believe to be Catholic? Like, what are the non-negotiables? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I'm not sure, however, it's the best way for us to frame it, you know, mm -hmm. because it can encourage a kind of pick and choose Catholicism that's probably not the best way to go. Like the cafeteria Catholicism that's sort of caricatured. Exactly. In fact, what I think we need to do is to steer between two extremes. On the one extreme is so-called, Zach, as you put it, cafeteria Catholicism. I like these teachings. I don't like those. You know, in a consumer culture, I think that can be particularly problematic. Teachings start to feel like commodities, things that you like or don't like, and that may not be the best way to go. On the other hand, I think we also want to avoid a sort of Catholic fundamentalism that treats everything the church teaches from whether to stand or kneel during the Eucharistic prayer to the divinity of Christ as if they were equally non-negotiable. Right? <laughs> mm. So one of the things that I think the Catholic Church has, has learned to do well, it's taken us two millennia to do this, is to recognize a kind of hierarchy in church teaching, um, just levels of church teaching, in which we recognize that some teachings are more important than others. I don't think any of them can simply be ignored or dispensed with, Ashley. But I, I do think it makes sense for us to say not all of them are equally central. And so we want to encourage people to try and distinguish those teachings that are more central, more fundamental to our faith, without suggesting that you can simply blow off everything else. But those differences are going to make a difference because some of those teachings we think are, are indeed essential. I mean, it's hard to call yourself a Catholic Christian if you don't believe in the divinity of Christ or in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. On the other hand, one could imagine that, you know, Catholics in good conscience might struggle with, you know, some more technical teachings, maybe teachings in the moral realm, something like whether the use of in vitro fertilization is an intrinsic evil. I mean, I don't think that rises to the level of the divinity of Christ. Mm. And so as a Catholic, how I treat that second teaching probably shouldn't be the same as how I treat belief in Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. What about the use of like acoustic guitar at mass? Is that <laughs> in the creed? Yeah. Yeah. There's probably a whole other category for that in the area of aesthetics. <laughs> but like, so why is the answer not just like the creed plus trusting the authority of the Pope? Well, I'd be with you on the creed that trusting the authority of the Pope would be a little bit tricky because we'd want to make a distinction between the Pope when he's teaching doctrinally mm -hmm. and the Pope when he's telling you what his favorite soccer team is. When he's on a press conference on a plane. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think I would want to say that the fundamental teachings of our faith, the ones that we should be probably most concerned with are indeed, as you put it, the ones that we profess every Sunday. 
in the Nicene or uh, Apostles' Creed, plus some other things, because the Creed doesn't really deal with fundamental sacramental teachings like real presence mm-hmm. in the Eucharist and so on and so forth. But I think that gets you a long way. Now, there are other dogmatic teachings that are pretty technical. And I think it's possible for somebody to be a Catholic their entire life, to be a good practicing Catholic and not even know about some of those teachings, let alone, you know, have to affirm them. Right. Because I mean, like, I can imagine present day, certainly, but for most of history, most people couldn't articulate every single articulated dogma of the Catholic Church. But I don't think you could suggest that those people were somehow less Catholic because they didn't formally assent to this articulated version of church teaching. No, I think that's exactly right. And that's why, you know, for example, I tend to believe we need to be very careful about throwing the word heresy around, right? Mm -hmm. Because heresy is the obstinate, intentional rejection of a dogmatic teaching of the church. And I think there are very few people who do that. I think there are a lot of people who misunderstand church teaching or just haven't given a lot of thought about it. You know, I mean, so the belief in angels, I mean, that may be a dogma of the church, but there are a lot of folks for whom angels don't play a big role in their Catholic imagination. They're not rejecting the teaching. It's just a teaching that isn't really informing their Catholic worldview. Can we just going back to basics, define, you've mentioned dogma a couple times in the hierarchy. So what are the gradations of authority and teaching? Yeah, it's really helpful. So in my writing, I've identified four areas, but I'm going to do three right now that I think are more fundamental because one of them is more recent and, and a little more complicated. And I think there's an intuitive rightness to this. So when we speak of dogma in the Catholic Church, we're first of all talking about teachings that are divinely revealed. So they're found in scripture and or tradition. They've been proposed as divinely revealed by the magisterium of the church. And therefore, they are proposed infallibly, which is to say the teaching magisterium is not wrong in what it says about them. That doesn't mean it's said it the best way possible. That doesn't mean we can't improve how we talk about them or think about them, but they're not wrong. And, you know, I think there's just a fundamental common senseness to that, that there are teachings that are really basic to our faith, and we ought to privilege those. And so rightly, I think we can say a Catholic cannot obstinately deny or reject one of those things. Note how I worded that. That's not the same thing as having a bad day and, you know, not sure you believe in God on that particular day. That's not the same thing as obstinately rejecting and denying. So those things are central. And because they're divinely revealed, because they come from God through Christ, mediated in the life and teaching of the church, we assent to those with faith. You know, we believe in those dogmas. Then there's a second category that we'll call authoritative doctrine. These are teachings that are not divinely revealed, but they flow out of the church's wisdom as it spent two millennia reflecting on divine revelation. They're often dealing with very specific questions. So a lot of the church's concrete moral teachings, or a little earlier, I mentioned the church's teaching that the use of in vitro fertilization is an intrinsic evil. That's not a dogma of the church. That's a doctrine of the church that we should take seriously, but it's not been taught infallibly. And so there is at least a remote possibility that the church is in error, or if you will, may need to correct or revise that teaching in some particular way. So you've got central teachings, and then you've got these others. And and for me, the analogy is as simple as how my wife and I kind of dealt with our household when our children were young. There were some fundamental teachings that just were not negotiable. I mean, Mm. 
you don't do violence to one another. You don't hit one another. You don't demean one another. Those are just fundamental teachings in our household, and they weren't going to change. But my wife and I also engaged in other teachings based on our, our wisdom as parents about you know, when the kids had to be in at night or how much, you know, time they could have on video games or things like that, where we were using our best judgment, but where we might readily admit that we were wrong or overcorrected or, you know, were reactive in one way or another. So that seems to make some sense to me. So does that mean that dogma can't develop, but doctrine can? Is that like what sets them apart? Uh, It's a good question. I think both of them can develop But if we speak of a dogma of the church, while it can develop, what I would say is it can never be reversed. So we can grow in our understanding about that dogmatic teaching. So, for example, the Council of Trent talks about real presence, and it uses the language of transubstantiation. Okay. Mm We may find a better way to talk about real presence that doesn't rely on Aristotelian metaphysics. We'll never say Trent was wrong. But we can say, boy, that language is awful technical. And here's a better way of getting at that same reality. So in the case of a dogma, we're talking about its development, but not its reversal. In the case of authoritative doctrine, on the other hand, think slavery or the church's teaching on religious liberty or the church's teaching that women are intrinsically inferior to men on the order of nature. These are teachings that weren't dogmas. But they were taught as doctrines, and in fact, over time, the church has reversed itself on them. And I just want to pause here, because for a lot of people, this is sort of a spiritual and psychological blow in how they've conceived of the church and the church's teaching, because a lot of people take a lot of solace in this idea that, like, oh, church teaching doesn't change. It's this one, you know, thing that stands against the whims of modernity and I find a lot of solace in that. And maybe the same way you look at your parents, to go yeah. back to your analogy, yeah. right? Like, yeah. they know everything. And to hear that, you know, some things might be reversed on or improved upon, right. I think is like right. a real challenge for people. Is that something that you see? Yeah, I think people can be threatened by it. I want to encourage them to kind of change the way we think about that. So let's talk about the things that that explicitly can be changed in and were reversed, you know? The analogy I have is, you know, the authority that I grant my doctor. So if I go in and see my doctor and I tell him I'm having chest pains and he says, well, you know, such and such is the likely reason for this. You need to probably drop a few pounds. You need to change your exercise regimen. Okay. Those things seem plausible and I recognize my doctor's authority. And so I'm going to follow that. If he says that I'm clipping my toenails too close, on the other hand, I'm going to have reason to wonder about my doctor's authority. I'm going to question that, right? So I grant the authority of my doctor even when I don't think he's infallible. So just because I don't think it's impossible that he's wrong, that doesn't mean he doesn't have any authority. And I think that's true of the magisterium of the church. Simply because there may be certain situations where they could be in error doesn't mean that overall we can't find it to be a reliable and really central guide for how we form our faith. All right. You mentioned three different gradations, and we've done dogma and doctrine. So what's number three? Yeah. So first there's dogma. Second, I would just say authoritative doctrine. And the third category really isn't teaching so much. It's going to be church discipline. It's going to be, I mentioned the example about, you know, whether you stand or kneel during the Eucharistic prayer or how much philosophy a seminarian has to take before they can be ordained. 
Well, isn't clerical celibacy, isn't even that a discipline? Clerical celibacy would be an excellent example of that. Yeah. But but there would be other things as well. Imagine, so Pope Francis, when he gave his wonderful encyclical Laudato Si, on care for our common home, he offers some things in there that I think are of fundamental doctrinal significance. But he also weighs in on whether cap and trade mechanisms are the best mechanisms to deal with global climate change. Well, when he's weighing in on a policy question on that, I grant his right to do so, but I would say that doesn't rise to the level of church doctrine, and Catholics in good conscience can say, hey, I absolutely agree with the Pope when he's talking about our fundamental obligation to care for our common home, but I'm free to disagree with him on cap and change, because that's really a policy question. Mm -hmm. That's a concrete application of church teaching to a very complicated issue. And so that's that third category that I would call church discipline, church law, prudential judgments, those kinds of things. It's funny because this actually breaks a model that I had of church teaching in my head, which is that if it's found in an encyclical, it automatically rises to a certain level of authority, right? And the example you just gave, all of those are coming out of an encyclical, which is an authoritative teaching document. But just because it's in an encyclical doesn't mean that it's authoritative doctrine. Right. It's a good point. And one of the things we have to recognize is this is a modern dilemma. The very notion of a papal encyclical, particularly a long papal encyclical, that's a new development. Prior to the 19th century, I mean, the first papal encyclical was probably articulated in the 18th century with Pope Benedict XIV. But most encyclicals were really short, and they usually dealt with disciplinary matters. The use of an encyclical that developed a kind of a large theological argument, that only occurs beginning in the 19th century. And it really develops in the 20th and 21st century with somebody like, say, Pope John Paul II, who issued long, theologically and philosophically rich encyclicals. And that's been continued since then. That complicates things a lot. When encyclicals were really shortened to the point and addressed a very specific question, and that was it, it was a lot easier to know what the authority was. But now that you have these long, rich encyclicals that are one part doctrine, one part theological reflection, and one part prudential judgment, trying to suss out the authority of an encyclical becomes a lot more complicated than it was before the 19th century. So in your book, you talk about authority as like it takes two to tango with authority. And so far, we've focused on like the church part of it. What about from the followers perspective? What does it yeah. mean to trust authority, to yeah, yeah, distrust yeah. authority as, a, as no. a Catholic? Good question. So remember what I said at the beginning, that I think what we want to do is to steer a middle path between what we'll call cafeteria Catholicism and Catholic fundamentalism. So what does that middle path look like? The metaphor that I've been using of late to get at this is what I call wrestling with our tradition. That I think as a Catholic, we're obligated to take the teaching seriously, to wrestle with it. The the image that I have is, you know, of course, Jacob wrestling with an angel in Genesis. I think that's a wonderful image because it shows that I'm taking the church's teaching seriously enough to struggle with it. Right. So the thought experiment I'm going to give you is imagine two adult Catholics who have gone through the RCIA process and have been well brought into the church, initiating the church. We'll call them John and Mary. 
for different reasons, they both fell in love with what it was to be Catholic. You know, I mean, they were just excited. They were attending every faith formation class in their parish and everything. They thought it was great. They're, they go through the Easter vigil sacraments. They're attending a follow-up Catholic adult formation class that their pastor's teaching. They're all on board. They're excited about the church's teaching until the pastor gets to some of the church's teaching in bioethics. And he announces to them that the Catholic Church has taught that, I'm going to use the example I mentioned before, in vitro fertilization in all situations is intrinsically evil. And they're kind of taken aback. They never heard about this when they were in their RCIA process. And frankly, it kind of troubles them both in different ways. In fact, John is furious when he finds out about it. He gets up and he complains in the class, this is why I almost didn't become Catholic, because there's so much I love about Catholicism until we get to the bedroom issues. And then everything goes awry. And he just gets up in a huff and he walks away, leaves the class. Mary takes a different tack. She has a problem with it. And she goes to the pastor afterwards and she says, Father, I'm confused. I remember our talking during the RCIA about how the Catholic Church says married couples should be generous in wanting to welcome life. These seem to be technologies that would help them, a married couple, bring new life into their home. Why wouldn't we support that? And her pastor quite honestly says, Mary, I'm barely one week ahead of the rest of y'all here. I'm going to go back and do some more reading on this. In fact, I know the Vatican's issued a document on this. Why don't you and I both agree to read it? We'll come back next week and talk. So they do. And he says, you know, I have to admit, you've raised a good question. Mary, for her part, says, well, I have to admit, as I read the Vatican document, there are things I hadn't thought of. For example, the danger of kind of commodifying children, you know, looking in catalogs and picking who you're your donor father and donor mother will be, and so on. I really hadn't thought about that. So I have to admit, there may be some wisdom in the church's teaching that I hadn't considered, but I'm still not convinced that there might not be some instances where it'd be morally appropriate for a family to do that. Now, that was a long-winded example, but here's what I want to suggest. John just dismissed a teaching he didn't like, that he didn't agree with. Mary wrestled with the teaching. She couldn't agree with it, but she didn't want to dismiss it. She wanted to take it seriously. And I would argue that even if at the end of the day, she wasn't completely on board, she was changed just like Jacob. She was changed because she had the courage to at least struggle with the teaching. So I think in some ways, what's more important than simply checking off boxes, yeah, I can believe that. Yeah, I can believe that. Yeah, I can believe that. No, I can't believe those things. It's better to think about our faith life as a journey in which we're called like Jacob to wrestle until the break of day. If I can ask a maybe reductive or fundamentalist question, is everyone in this story still Catholic? <laughs> well, that, no, it's a good point, because I think you would find some people on the Catholic fundamentalist side who would say, no, Mary's out. I don't, I don't care if she's changed. If she can't be on board entirely, she's a dissenting Catholic and she's out. And, she, and therefore should not receive sacraments. And, exactly. And, like, and or, I would argue, no, first of all, because what she is not able to assent to is not a dogma of the church. So the magisterium itself admits the possibility of change in that area. What's important is that she's at least taken the teaching seriously, that she's open to conversion, that she's open to continuing to study and pray and reflect on that teaching. 
John's a different story, of course, because I think John has simply blown off the teaching. And I don't want to get into whether he's Catholic or not. I wouldn't say he's not Catholic. I wouldn't say he's not Catholic because he's not rejected a fundamental dogmatic teaching of the church. But I would say his Catholicism is maybe not quite as mature as Mary's is. All right. Mm. And one more follow-up question. Yeah. Do each of the characters in this story have a different level of obligation to assent to these different levels? In a sense, does a priest and a public teacher of the church, maybe a theologian, maybe a podcaster, do we have different obligations and rules than your average person in the pew? Oh, that's a great question and one that's not asked enough. And it's a tough one because it's one thing, you know, for a an individual Catholic to kind of decide they've got to grapple with the church's teaching on, you know, birth control or whatever that- Or like priestly celibacy, top, right? Like depending, priest- it, it doesn't matter what my opinion is. I'm not a priest and I'm- <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It doesn't affect my moral life. So I think it's important to make a distinction between the obligations of an individual believer and the obligation of a public minister in the church. Because a public minister in the church, first of all, I wouldn't deny- their right to grapple or wrestle with church teaching. And so I don't have a problem with a catechist that personally is struggling with, say, the church's teaching on birth control. But I would say they have an obligation when they're in the classroom, when they're teaching, to fairly and sympathetically present the teaching of the Catholic Church. Why? Because all Catholics have a right to know what the church teaches. In other words, you don't want to engage in a kind of paternalism in which you decide you know more than the people you're teaching, and so you're going to save them from the the need to wrestle with church teaching. No, I think you've got to give the people you're teaching the right to wrestle with this teaching on their own. Just because you struggle with it doesn't mean they're going to struggle with it. So when we're public ministers of the church, I do think we have an obligation to present all of the church's teaching sympathetically. Now, that doesn't mean we can't acknowledge difficulties. It seems it's also appropriate for a public minister of the church to make a distinction and say, look, here's the church's official teaching, and I want to give you the best arguments for it. But I also want to be clear, this is not a dogmatic teaching, that there is a possibility that there might be some revision on this, and it's worth your knowing that. Does that follow? Yeah. That was one of the best parts of your book is you end each chapter with a, what is it, disputed questions? Disputed questions, yeah. (laughs) And yeah, I appreciated that. So in your example, Mary and the priest decide to read this Vatican document together, which seems like the ideal scenario. But um, Synodality in action. Yeah. But way back in 2000, you wrote an article in American Magazine called The New E-Magisterium, where basically instead of people talking to their priest about their questions, they go to the internet. And since 2000, that has only become more the case. So like, how does a Catholic navigate this world where they want to respect the authority of the church, but they have all these sources that call themselves Catholic online. And like, how do you navigate that? Well, I think that's a complicated challenge. One that you're right is much more true today than it was 20 years ago when I was writing about that. Yeah, I I think it's difficult because there is a way in which even today there's a new e-magisterium that the far more oppressive and demanding magisterium is not the Pope and bishops. It's Catholic websites that are much more eager to decide who's in and who's out, who's a heretic Mm -hmm. and who's a faithful Catholic than any Pope or bishop is. And so it's important for us to remember that at the end of the day, the real magisterium is the Pope and bishops, not Catholic websites. Now, you know, sometimes it's not so easy to get at 
what are the official Catholic teaching is. The Catholic catechism is a great help. One of the difficulties with the catechism, and it's a really a rich resource, is it isn't always as clear as I would like in differentiating these levels of teaching. It doesn't say as explicitly as I would like, this is a dogma of the church and is proposed infallibly. This is an authoritative doctrine of the church that we need to take seriously and grapple with, but is not taught with the same authority. So I think the catechism is itself a great resource. I just wished it did a better job of distinguishing levels of authority. Do you think that invites just like natural dissent or is that someone's fear? No, I think that's exactly the case. That's right. I think people are afraid to do that because they think there's kind of a slippery slope thing going on. Yeah. Once we admit there's the possibility of change, you know, aren't we inviting dissent? Which is why I have avoided the language for the most part of dissent and prefer wrestling. Hmm. You know, what I'm more interested in is are you willing to be a faithful disciple of Jesus and struggle as many of the people that Jesus talked to had to struggle with Jesus's teaching. And I think that's the real challenge today. So, you know, I would always say to somebody who, you know, was asking a question, well, is that a dogma of the church? If I were to say, well, no, it isn't, I would then want to follow up and say, but I still think you need to take it seriously. And I think you need to, and this would be important, give the official teaching the benefit of the doubt, right? That we should trust in general the wisdom of the church. Now, if a red flag is raised, you can't ignore that. You can't make yourself, you know, believe something that just seems problematic, but you can at least give her the benefit of the doubt. And like Mary did say, you know, when she first heard that teaching, wow, I have a problem with it. But now she's got a choice. She can just ignore it or she can say in humility, maybe I haven't understood it. So I want to do a little bit more reading, a little bit more reflection on it. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So that gets me to a question I've had prompted by something I saw on Twitter. Someone asked, if there is a church teaching that you acknowledge is church teaching, but you don't believe is a sin, are you supposed to confess that? Yeah, that's tough, right? It's a good question. At the end of the day, of course, you know, one of the characteristics of sin is that you recognize that it's a sin. Yeah. Now. Here's the other problem, though, right? This is now we're getting into the realm of conscience. But of course, conscience isn't believing what you want. 
conscience requires that your conscience is properly formed, that you've done the work of trying to understand the church's teaching. So, you know, if, if somebody says, well, I don't believe that's a sin, but they haven't bothered to even understand what the church's teaching was about, the problem isn't with they're not thinking it's a sin. The problem is they haven't engaged in a properly formed conscience. But I would say if one has made a good faith effort to properly form their conscience and they simply say, look, I would believe this, I would do this if I genuinely thought this was wrong, but I've tried to study it, I've prayed about it, I've struggled with it, I'm not convinced this is against God's will. That decision may actually take them out of the Catholic Church but it's still something they have to follow. Thomas Aquinas said this, at the end of the day, you have to follow a well-formed conscience, even if it leads you out of the church. And that's part of the sanctity of conscience. But the key is it's got to be a well-formed conscience. Now, I feel like thus far, people listening are going to be imagining their own issues that they struggle with. So I kind of want to just maybe name a couple of what I think are the most common ones, or the ones that I hear, particularly around the church's teaching on women's ordination or LGBT persons. Have you seen your own students or people in your life grapple with these things? And how do you advise them on, you know, trying to wrestle, as you say, if they have a hard time with it? Right. Well, knowing a little bit more about how authoritative these teachings are really helps, you know. So one good guideline here is, you know, one of the features about of a dogma, of course, is that it's divinely revealed. Okay, it's revealed to us in scripture and tradition. If a teaching depends in its substance on changeable human knowledge, it's hard for me to understand how that could be proposed as a dogma. Let me give you an example. You know, in the area of bioethics, when we're talking about the ethics of morning after pills or things like this, these are very complicated questions, right? But to some extent, the church's teaching depends on what we know about scientifically the beginnings of life. And that's changed. I mean, we know that, you know, the idea that a woman provides 50% of the genetic content for a new life is a relatively modern development, right? The idea that women aren't merely incubators, but in fact contribute fundamentally the egg to reproduction, that's a modern development. So before, you know, in the 13th century, an abortion after quickening was considered a more grave sin than an abortion before quickening. Well, why? Well, our biological understanding changed. So if there's a teaching we have today that depends on some changing knowledge, let's say in the way of science, it can be a binding teaching of the church, but it's hard to see how it could be a dogma of the church, right? Because it's dependent on changing understandings of science, right? So I think that's one helpful way for us to say there's an intuitive way in which we can look at certain church teachings. If they seem to be clear, eternal truths that come from the teaching of Christ and the magisterium, that's one thing. If they're teachings that clearly are dependent on what we would call contingent knowledge that's subject to change, well, this is probably not going to be something that can be taught dogmatically. Now, trying to figure out which teaching belongs in which category. I mean, that's a very difficult question, and I think that's a lot of the work of theologians, is for us to try and help the faithful recognize which teachings have been proposed dogmatically and which teachings haven't been. 
So can we get into how those not dogmatic teachings or doctrines actually do change or develop over time? Maybe give an example of something that has changed in the church's history. Yeah, sure. Well, let's do the classic. I think the easiest example has to do with religious liberty. In the 19th century, if you go back to, say, Pope Pius IX's Syllabus of Errors, one of the things that he condemns is political liberalism, and he asserts this idea that the government in a country which is majority Catholic, the government has an obligation to give preferential treatment to Catholic teaching and has an obligation to suppress all other teaching. All right. So that was official Catholic teaching in the 19th century. If you're in Spain or Italy, where the majority of the population is Catholic, the government is obligated to give privilege to the Catholic faith and is allowed to suppress Protestantism. The Second Vatican Council challenges that, right? It says it's based on a false premise. The, the false premise is that error has no rights. So in the 19th century, the idea is, look, if you're a Protestant, you're in error. So you don't have any rights. And the government has an obligation to try and help you become Catholic by suppressing your error, right? Well, essentially what the Second Vatican Council recognizes is it's, that's the wrong way to formulate it. It's not a question of whether error has rights or not. It's whether persons have rights. And so the Second Vatican Council says all of us have a fundamental right to seek the truth. And that means that even people who don't believe what the Catholic Church teaches have a right to seek the truth as they can. And so the Second Vatican Council articulated what we call a doctrine of religious freedom, that everybody, not just Catholics, has a right to pursue the truth as they see fit, and no government has the right to prevent them from doing so. That's a pretty dramatic change in Catholic teaching. But some people, I think, are inclined to do a bit of a spin job on something like that, and they'll say it's a better articulation of yes. what the church has always taught, or a, you know, just a slight, maybe a development and continuity with what the church yep. has taught. But there are cases when it, they're in contradiction and they go back, right? I think so. The other example I gave you is basic Catholic teaching that women are subordinate to men on the order of nature. On the order of nature, naturally, Ashley is subordinate to you. This teaching <laughs> is taught all the way until the 20th century. I mean, it's not rejected until Pius Twelfth. Now, you can talk about the you know organic flowering of church teaching, but that doesn't strike me as very organic there. That strikes me as a teaching that we simply had to repudiate. Mm. Right? Someone said something to me once, a theologian, some lecture, that basically St. Augustine believed things when he was alive that today are no longer Catholic, and that kind of blew my mind a little bit, yeah. that that could be true still. Mm. Yeah, nothing that was divinely revealed, but beyond that, sure. Every thinker in every time could probably be accused of that at some point or another. You mentioned the Second Vatican Council and how it changed or developed this specific doctrine. But I think in the book, you also talk about how the Second Vatican Council like fundamentally changed how we understand authority. Yeah. Can you explain what that shift was? One of the things I would say is that there was a tendency, a tendency before Vatican II to think of authority in a juridical key. So think command, obey. So, you know, the example that would be there's in our state a 55 mile an hour speed limit, you know, and you go 70 miles an hour. I mean, 
you don't get to say to the police officer, well, I'm dissenting from the speed limit here, so you can't give me a ticket. I mean, no, I you know, juridically, this is the law, the <laughs> law of the land, and you, you've got to follow it, right? That was the primary paradigm in the Catholic Church. So it treated doctrine more like law, that you follow, you know, you're obedient and faithful or you're not. But Vatican II shifted from command, obey, to proclaim, respond. So the church's task is to proclaim the gospel and to invite us to engage that gospel teaching and respond as followers of Jesus. Another way of looking at this, and in fact, this has been my shorthand. If I had to say, what was Vatican II about in one sentence, I would say this. It was inviting us to move from a child's model to an adult model. You know, children have to be given rules and said, this is why you do this. You don't run and play in the street, period. Why? Because I said so, all right? That's a child's model, and, and it's appropriate to use authority that way. An adult model proclaims, and this is what you have to do as a parent, you realize the, the rules as rules aren't going to work. You have to actually talk to your teenagers and adolescents and young adults and explain the reasonableness of that teaching. Vatican II starts to treat us as adults. It says it's not enough to lay down rules. We have to proclaim the gospel and give good reasons for our faith and take seriously adults who are going to grapple with this faith and sometimes question and struggle with it. And I think that's what Pope Francis is embodying more than anyone. And, and that's why I'm so excited about his emphasis on synodality, because synodality is really about being an adult church. It's about dialogue. It's about listening to people, even when you feel strongly about something, having the courage to listen to people with whom you disagree. You know, I think that's a great transition for us because we've been talking a lot about hierarchies of truths, but we're really doing this ahead of the synod because it seems like there's a lot on the table that's up for discussion that previously has not been up for discussion based yeah. on the documents that have come out so far. I mean, just kind of getting to some of these hot button issues, are people wrong to expect change to come out of something like this? So things like maybe ordaining women to the diaconate or including LGBT people in the Catholic Church more. Are, are people setting themselves up for failure to even think that this could change? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I, I do worry a little bit about that. I'm not going to get into the details of this, but, you know, I have my own wish list of, of concrete things that I'd like to see some change and revision on. But I think that's the wrong way to look at what the Synod is about. I mean, the principal themes of the Synod are communion, participation, and mission. I think synodality for Pope Francis is not in the first instance about changing doctrines or laws. It's about changing the culture of the church. It's about developing new ecclesial habits, habits of listening, habits of respectful but courageous questioning, habits of patient dialogue. My thinking is that the focus on these two assemblies, the one that's coming fall and the fall of 2024, are more going to be about ecclesial habits. How can we get into the habit of listening to people with whom we disagree? 
How can we get into the habit of not just attending to certain ideological tribes, but to the insights of ordinary Christian faithful, not just educated elites like me or other, you know, people that are theologians and so on and so forth. You know, when Pope Francis talks about going to the peripheries, he's talking about paying attention to people's popular religiosity and so on. So I think what Pope Francis wants to see come out of this is the development of habits of ecclesial discernment. Now, my suspicion is that we're not going to see a lot of dramatic change at the level of the issues that you brought about. But I would say to people for whom those issues are important, first of all, you have to have the long view. I just think to be Catholic by definition is to take the long view of things. It doesn't change quickly. But second to say, I think what's maybe more important than change on this teaching or that is that we're tilling the soil, that we're creating the conditions in the church, a culture that's not afraid to listen, that could bear fruit in the next generation, that could create the conditions where we might reimagine some of these teachings. I actually believe that's the vocation of Pope Francis. I think that what Pope Francis is doing is he's creating the conditions in which after his pontificate, we become so habituated to genuine discernment and allergic to polarization and tribalism that we can really entertain significant change without falling into what he calls a parliamentary logic or a, what I would call a thin majoritarianism where you're just tallying up the votes. He's very nervous about that kind of thing. And I think he's right to do that. If we change these doctrines or these practices and ordain married men or women to the diaconate, but we haven't changed the church culture, I'm not sure we're going to be better off. It's more important to change the culture where we learn to listen and then allow that listening to lead us where the Spirit wills. And perhaps that will be a change regarding the blessing of same-sex unions or the ordination of women to the diaconate. But that will be a more fruitful way for change to happen, it seems to me. So one thing I sense from the Synod on Synodality is that, is there a surrendering of authority happening from the papal office a little bit, or at least a a realigning of authority within the church by elevating synodality to some kind of consultative body. It seems to me a very different model of papal authority or the exercise of papal power than we've seen in the past. And can I just add on to that? Like, as someone who has studied authority in the church for so long, like the idea of having lay people and women as voting members of the synod, what that sure. says about the church. No, that's a very good question. So one of the things that we want to do is we want to parse out the ways in which we're talking about authority. In the life of the Catholic Church, I would suggest there's a kind of tripod of authority in this way. There's the authority of church office. That's the magisterium, the pope and bishops who articulate in a public and official way the doctrine of the church. There's the authority of scholarship, the authority of theologians. It's not an authority of church office. It doesn't come through ordination the way the authority of the Pope and bishops do. Their authority comes by virtue of their being bishops and having an apostolic office. The authority of scholarship is the authority of scholarship. I mean, it depends on our credentials and the solidity of our research. And then there's the authority that comes with Christian baptism. This is sometimes referred to as, the Latin term would be the census fidei, or the sense of the faithful. And that's the authority that comes with 
the experience of living the gospel in our daily lives. These authorities are distinct, but they each rely on the other. And so the church will flourish best when we do justice to all three of those, right? And so what we're seeing right now, I think, is not the surrender of authority where the the pope or the bishops are abdicating their authority, but rather a recognition that the church does its work, its discernment best when it attends to all three, when it takes seriously what biblical scholars tell us, or patristic theologians, or systematic theologians, or ethicists, when it takes seriously the discernment of the bishops and pope, and when it listens to the, the witness of ordinary believers. And so synodality, I think, doesn't want to yield any of those, but it wants to bring those three in conversation with one another. And so the hope for something like this synodal assembly is that each authority will play its proper role. The Pope will preside. There's going to be bishops that are going to have voting rights. There's going to be lay faithful that are there. There are theologians who have been appointed as advisors. And so what one hopes for is that all three of these authorities learn to listen to each other. And what happened, I think, before the Second Vatican Council is we became too reliant on one of those three, right? The authority of Pope and bishops. So I'm not interested in, nor was the Second Vatican Council, nor was Pope Francis interested in rejecting the authority of Pope and bishops. What they want to do is to bring that authority into more productive conversation with these other two. And it's not a zero-sum game. The Pope and bishops will teach more effectively when it's clear they first listened to good scholarship and the wisdom of the faithful. Hmm. The faithful will be more mature disciples when their faith is, is enriched and cultivated by a better understanding of official church teaching and the insights of theologians. Theologians will do their work better when they don't forget to attend properly to the formal teaching of the church, but they too learn to listen to the insights of ordinary faithful. We need all three of those authorities to flourish, to be the church Christ wants us to be. That's a great place to end. Very uh, Trinitarian. <laughs> yeah, to, yes. to work towards. But Rick, before we let you go for good, we do have one final question that we ask you and all our guests, and that's if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, authoritative or not, who would it be and why? All right. Well, what the heck? I'm going to be a little whimsical. Great. <laughs> and a certified boomer. I'm going with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Love, Love it. it. Uh, who's uh, that? You know, a, a lapse. <laughs> yeah, who's that? Yeah, exactly. That hurts. That hurts a lot. <laughs> that, <was> that joke. <laughs> that hurts a lot. He's a lapsed Catholic who has never lost his Catholic sensibility. And if you have any doubt of that, go to Netflix and watch Springsteen on Broadway that ends powerfully with his recollection of his Catholic faith. But I think there's so much in his, his music and his energy that is about the goodness of the common person, that's about trying to be authentic in our relationships with one another and to take the demands of justice and mercy seriously without being preachy that I love, and I'm an unabashed fan of the boss. So St. Bruce Springsteen. There we it. go. One more time. He is Richard Gillardi. He is the author of By What Authority? Foundations for Understanding Authority in the Church. Rick, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Uh, it's been a delight.
Now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. And as always, we want to start out and thank our new Patreon supporters. So this week, a huge thank you to Jay and Kashi, Kristen Foringer, and Xuan Nguyen. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And just a quick programming note, we are going to be dropping another episode on Patreon. We had a chance to sit down with some really, really smart students from Fordham University who are like, they're taking a class on synodality at Fordham, which is so cool. So they understood how all of this is supposed to work. I thought a lot better than I did. Yeah, no, they've taken part in their own conversations in the spirit. And you could just tell that they were so excited to be here in Rome and seeing the synod that they've been studying about for the last semester up close and personal. Yeah. And, you know, it's always good to hear from the next generation. Ashley and I, I know a lot of you consider us your young adult <laughs> podcast, but as we age into 30, we're losing touch on some of these things. So it's really good to get their perspective as young people on the synod. So if you want to hear their perspective and all of our bonus content from Rome and beyond, please support us at patreon.com slash America Media. All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Colleen Dully. Our sound engineer this month is Frank Tucson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and on Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded this month in the eternal city of Rome. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you soon.